Well, this morning we begin our terms sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit, of course, is an agricultural image that occurs regularly in Christian literature. The English word appears some 290 times in the New Revised Standard Version of our Bibles. But the word's associations are not always positive. There is good fruit and bad fruit. As Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. And of course, we long to see our lives bear good fruit. And we pray for one another that the Spirit would bring about an abundant harvest of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, fidelity, gentleness, and self-control. But every decent farmer knows that what distinguishes a good tree from a bad tree are the conditions of its growth. This morning I want to consider what conditions are required for God's Spirit to do his arboreal work in our lives. And it has to do with our disposition towards God's grace. I remember how someone was once described to me as having a type A personality. You know what I mean by type A? A type A is somebody who needs to be in control all the time. This person is meticulous and exact, demanding perfection of themselves and others. These individuals can be intense and anxious, for they're often motivated by fear and are given to worry. In the train of life, they are in the front, in the engine, monitoring the dials and the progress of the train. By contrast, there are those who have a type B personality. These are folks who take things as they come and never get too excited. Easygoing with perhaps a tendency to laziness, type Bs will be found in the observation car with their feet on the table, simply enjoying the ride, oftentimes to the annoyance of their type A fellow travelers. So which are you, I asked the fellow who schooled me in this personality theory. He happened to be my pastor in university. After a moment's reflection, he answered, I'm a type A pretending to be a type B. Well, I can't vouch for the integrity of this kind of psychological analysis. I doubt it is approved by any professional association. Nevertheless, it serves a purpose as a rough and ready description of common patterns of human behavior. And these patterns are evident in the ways many people approach religion. Indeed, this caricature may help us in understanding what lies behind St. Paul's teaching in our epistle this morning. Paul might be thought of as talking about two types of people in the Galatian church, type A's and type B's. How are they different from each other? And how does this concern us? Well, let's look at each in turn. We might say that it was the type A's which was attracting Paul's consternation. You see, in the church in Galatia, there was a group of people who had a strong Jewish identity and they saw Christian discipleship in very Jewish terms. This shouldn't surprise us. In the first place, 
The first Christians were all Jews, beginning with Jesus and including the Apostle Paul. The scripture they studied was the same scripture studied in the synagogue, for the New Testament had not been written. Moreover, just as Christianity today can have a lot of different expressions depending on whether it is Pentecostal or Roman Catholic or Lutheran or Baptist, so Judaism had different schools of thought and different cultural flavors. If the early Christians in Galatia had an identity crisis, it was in the extent to which they should consider themselves truly Jewish. Now, one of the hallmarks of Judaism is that it is a religion based on observing the law of Moses. In addition to the Ten Commandments, there are dozens of rules and regulations that good Jews were expected to follow in order to keep their relationship with God intact. And so the question was, should Christians be expected to follow these laws? And the type A's said yes. New converts to Christianity should be made to obey dietary restrictions, observe the Jewish calendar, and most controversially be circumcised. Such ordinances were all part of what the righteous and holy life of God demanded, said the type A's. God takes great delight in our submission, doesn't he? Isn't it the case that he rewards the good with blessing and repays the wicked with punishment? And at one level, it's hard to argue with the A's in this matter. After all, there have to be standards of some kind in religious society. It wouldn't do to lower the bar too far. A few rules and regulations can actually help to weed out the insincere and give us a picture of who's in and who's out. And this would do everybody some good, don't you agree? We could be clear about what membership involves. And of course, being able to establish thresholds and boundaries gives us the means of discovering just how we ourselves stand by comparison to others. Well, I imagine that the attitude I'm describing sounds familiar, for there are A's in every church. And just as they are to be found in the engine room of life, so they often make their way to positions of leadership. The issues which exercise them are no longer regulations concerning circumcision or what to eat, for we have other ways of demonstrating piety. The true measure of discipleship these days might have more to do with attendance at church or activity in Christian leadership or performing acts of generosity and compassion or having personal habits of prayerful devotion or simply being a nice and well-liked person. Well, it caused a scandal in Galatia and is for some just as scandalous today, but St. Paul says that this understanding of Christianity is a pile of crock. The type A's, he maintains, actually do the church more harm than good. Their rigidity leads to egotism, competition, and envy. And he warns about this at the end of chapter 5. We must not be conceited, inciting one another to rivalry, jealousy of one another. Moreover, anybody who uses standards of behavior as a test of whether they or somebody else is a true Christian will ultimately find themselves 
outside the church. For they will discover that their code of behavior and their standards of religiosity will be used to assess their own worthiness and that they will be found wanting. You that are so anxious to be under law, St. Paul cajoles in chapter 4, will you not listen to what the law says? I impress on you once again that every man who accepts circumcision is under obligation to keep the entire law. In other words, the rule keepers will one day find that they have spent their whole lives enslaved by a set of expectations which were incapable of delivering the hoped-for returns. For in the end, no human resolve is capable of resisting the world, the flesh, and the devil, just as no human being is capable of earning the love of God or meriting divine favor. And this is a truth we proud but insecure A's find hard to accept. But not so the B's. The B's in Paul's description are those who do not feel compelled to be religious in order to be Christian. We might fairly describe Paul himself as one of these. Although he lived a devout Christian life, he did not regard his observance of Jewish rules and regulations as requirements for church membership. He taught that salvation was possible without scrupulous attention to diet, holy festivals, or bodily mutilation. He refused to adopt a lifestyle which was pinched and restricted by the expectations of legalistic A's. He was, by his own description, a liberated Christian. And so he emboldens his hearers with an emancipating declaration. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and refuse to submit again to the yoke of slavery. My friends, the authentic Christian life begins with a posture of passivity. We need to surrender any notion that we must work for God's gifts. We can only receive them with empty hands. For God's good gifts are precisely that, gifts. They're not compensation or wages. God's goodness is free to those who would embrace it by faith. And its effect in our lives is nothing less than liberation from everything that would cramp us, accuse us, and hold us back. For the freedom which is ours in Christ is a true freedom. It is a freedom from our own messed-up designs, a freedom from the past, a freedom from the fear of the future. Life in the Spirit is this life of liberty from the things that tyrannize us, from our apprehensions, from expectations, from the mistakes we have made and will continue to make. God has forgiven us. He has wiped the slate clean so that we can start afresh day by day, moment by moment. Moreover, this is not just a freedom from, it is also a freedom for. In one of Paul's most striking phrases, he says in verse 13 that we are free to become slaves to one another. 
One of the greatest saints in the story of the Christian church was St. Bernard of Clairvaux, A.D. 1090 to 1153. The medieval Cistercian abbot Stephen Harding described Bernard's Christian devotion in this way. No amount of self-mortification could exceed his ambition. He strove to overcome his bodily senses altogether and to live entirely absorbed in religious meditation. Sleep he counted a loss and compared it to death. Food was only taken to keep him from fainting. The most menial offices were his delight, and even then his humility looked around for some lowlier employment. When it came to piety and rigor, Bernard was clearly a type A Christian. However, he once became grievously sick and thought he was about to die. As he anticipated the moment when he would meet his Savior, did he put his trust in his celibate life, wherein he had lived most chastely, or in his good works and deeds of charity, of which he had done many? No, instead, he said this. I have lived wickedly, but thou, Lord Jesus Christ, dost possess the kingdom of heaven. And this thou givest to me, not by the right of my works, but by the right of grace. By the right of grace. My friends, Christianity is good news for type A's and type B's alike, for it is a religion of grace. Without God's assistance, we are lost causes. We cannot gain the goal he has designed for us. We can no more live up to our baptismal promises or love God and neighbor or stir up our own wills as we will soon pray in our collect than we can swim the oceans. We must learn that there is nothing that we can do which would deserve his favor. God's grace and the freedom it brings arises out of his free and unconditional love. And this morning we are compelled to ask, have we accepted this gift? In the journeys that lie before us as students, staff, and faculty, the beginning of a new academic term, let our lives be a testimony to the freedom Christ has brought us, freedom to serve God and one another in his name. And may his spirit have liberty within us to produce the priceless fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Amen.